You are listening to the audio edition of Unstoppable Farce, The Mitch Maloney Story, by Mitch Maloney, read by the author. Chapter 4 Lipstick City The plate in front of me is large and black. In one corner, a single prawn that has been charred precisely on one side is balancing on its head, or where its head used to be anyway. In the opposite corner of the plate, a single asparagus spear has been skillfully restructured, freeze-dried, and posed to resemble a windswept tree from the nearby desert. The plate is dotted with a handful of extruded clam juice globules, but I'm staring at the red smear of beet emulsion connecting the asparagus tree to the scorched shrimp. It reminds me of the patch on that kid's jacket. Did you sign up for that class yet? asks Gabby. You mean the Kamido Defendu class? Not yet, I say. Well, like I told you on the phone, you might as well do it now while you're between major projects, because you won't have the time once you're starring in Everyone Loves Mitch or whatever they're going to call it, right? Besides, a lot of venues are starting to require their FCs to be certified yellow belts or else they have to fill out a complicated series of release forms. Slapping is the new heckling, you know. This is only our third face-to-face meeting since she agreed to take me on as a client. Gabby Gersh, the reclusive older sister to famous talent agents Bob and David Gersh. She likes to keep things quiet, she told me when we first met. She thinks she can get more done from the shadows. This seems like an unusual strategy for a talent agent, but she has so much conviction that I buy it completely. I've never met anyone quite like Gabby. She has the powerful physique and sculpted platinum hairdo of 90s-era Brigitte Nielsen, and the face and voice of Fran Leibovitz, circa now. This is her favorite restaurant, Ponce, in Culver City. We've been here for almost three hours. We're on our 17th course. You're probably right, Gabby. I'll sign up at my local dojo. How are you liking Lipstick City so far, Mitch? Not bad at all, I say. And Kara couldn't be happier. She spends her time jogging around Griffith Park now, or exploring the city with her new best friends, the Haim sisters. She's also working on a novel, which she tells me is like a cross between Eve Babbitts and Raymond Chandler. Interesting, says Gabby. I wonder if anything will come of that. And you've got a place now? We just moved into a stylish but low-key bungalow in Shadow Hills, a little north of Burbank. But still in the valley? Gabby asks. We wouldn't have it any other way. Like Sandra Bernhardt once said, the valley is the most romantic part of L.A. And note one. Well, good, because Los Angeles is where you need to be right now in your career. Once we get you a sitcom, like I said before, Gabby, I don't know if a sitcom is really the goal for me. I really just want to focus on the stand-up. I mean, the ultimate goal, of course, is the memoir. 
but I think we can agree it might be a little early for that. It didn't stop Trevor Noah, says Gabby. True, I say, but I'm not sure if my formative years are quite as compelling as Noah's. You're a creative guy, she says. I'm sure you can figure out a way to zhuzh it up. Well, maybe someday. But for now, you say I should do more podcasts. You know what I think about podcasts? Enlighten me, Mitch. I think podcasts are like assholes. Everybody's got one, and most of them are filthy. Mitch, she says, don't worry. I'm not going to put you on any podcast with a lot of toilet talk. Trust me, if you want your stand-up tours to be major events, you can't just be touring around doing stand-up all the time. Why not, I ask? Because you'll oversaturate the market and limit the fan base. You get your own show first. Or maybe a supporting role in a David Simon or an Adam McKay. Maybe an Apatow, who knows. And then you go back out on the road. You play bigger venues and charge more for tickets. That's how it's done, Mitch. Okay, but no superhero movies or Disney Plus, all right? Gabby pierces a creamy globule with her fork, lifts it to her mouth, and slowly crushes it with an incisor. We don't say no to a Marvel or a Star Wars, she says. We don't leave that kind of money on the table. Speaking of which, do you have any thoughts on how we might monetize this Wade Chupacabra character? I'm honestly just hoping that goes away. Like I told Marin, great interview, by the way. Thanks, Gabby. I wasn't sure. It got a little heated. No, no, that's good, she assures me. That's what got it picked up in the trades. And you don't think I came across as uh, overly modest? Oh, no, definitely not. The funny thing about talking to Marin is... I didn't even realize we'd started recording until after it was over. Anyway, like I was telling Mark, the sooner that character goes away, the better. I don't want to promote it in any way, shape, or... Look, Gabby interrupts me. Let's just say the chupacabra's out of the bag already, okay? You know what those kids on Clip Clop are saying about the interview with Marin? They think it's all part of the spoof. They think that Mitch is the character that Wade is using to make fun of the Hollywood left and that you're going to reveal the conspiracy by infiltrating it from the inside. It's like everything is backward and upside down to those yahoos, I say. Gabby leans forward like she's about to tell me a secret. I don't know if you've heard, but Clip Clop is about to be acquired by hijinks, and when that happens... Every kid on the planet is going to have those videos in their pocket, whether you like it or not. It's your choice, Mitch. You can control and exploit a pre-existing, highly motivated fan base, or you can let them continue to twist your creation to fit their dark fantasies and have nothing to show for it. What she's saying makes sense from a Hollywood talent agent kind of angle. But there's a bigger issue here, so I push back. Gabby... If it were up to those clip-cloppers, places like Ponce wouldn't even exist. They think non-secular gastronomy restaurants are unrelatable. Hey, so sorry, Mitch, but maybe maybe one more time on that last line, just so we have like a, an alternative? Seriously? I was on a roll. Well, I, I'm pretty sure the cuisine you're referring to is molecular gastronomy, as opposed to non-secular gastronomy? You think I don't know about molecular gastronomy? 
I was eating that crap 200 years before you and the other futurelings even hatched, Darberius, and way before that kind of crap was considered normal food. This particular place was for atheists only, ergo it was non-secular gastronomy. Well, I don't... Mm. I think we're done here. Well, no, except I think that non-secular would actually mean that it is religious, so... I know that. You think I don't know that? That's what I'm saying. The food at Ponce is so good, it's like a religious kind of experience. Forget about the other thing. Right. Okay. Okay, then. Um, I guess we're good. Over and out. Wonderful. Where was I? Uh... Oh, yeah. Talking to Gabby about these clip-cloppers. They want us dead, I tell her. They probably think we're eating baby parts right now. I look back to the charred prawn, or what I had assumed was a prawn anyway. What am I even thinking? They're getting inside of my head! Those yahoos and clip-cloppers that love the Lithuanian chupacabra, they think they're the real salt of the earth, and we're the out-of-touch Hollywood elites. Just then, the fashion model server, wearing black and covered in tattoos, glides over to the table. Another Charles the Sixth Sazerac, Mr. Maloney? Sure, why not? I tell Gabby I'll think about how I might deal with the clip-clop situation. First on Gabby's list is the Last Laugh podcast, where Matt Wilstein asks me about my first laugh. I tell him the story about seeing Louis Anderson when I was in middle school, my first real stand-up show, and he did a bit about having a stub toe that had me crying and struggling to catch my breath. On the Good One podcast with Jesse David Fox, we mostly break down the cheesy pleasers bit from the album, trying to unpack every phrase to figure out how a bit can be that fully formed and perfect. When we get to the part at the end of the interview, he says, this is called the laughing round. I interrupt him. Oh, really? Is it like a lightning round, but because it's a comedy podcast, you call it the laughing round? Jesse David Fox is both impressed and flattered that I know the line. He asks me for a short story of an interaction I've had with a celebrity living or dead. So I tell him, there's so many to choose from. Before I was even famous, I'd met Bono, Chris Cornell, The Strokes, Radiohead, Roger Ebert, Little Richard. No kidding, says Jesse David Fox. Did you say this was before you were famous? That's right. I was the room service guy at a fancy boutique hotel in Seattle where all the celebrities stayed, and they all ordered room service. And even if they didn't, they'd get a complimentary fruit basket. Let's see... I brought orders to the Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Bonnie Raitt, Ice-T, Stephen Hawking, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jimmy Carter, Sally Field, Hugh Jackman, the Chemical Brothers, and America's dad himself, Bill Cosby. Wow, says Jesse David Fox. I know, such a wonderful storyteller, I say, but I don't even mean it. 
The truth is I've never found any of Cosby's records funny, and his books are even worse. Great person, though, as far as I can tell. And Gabby has cautioned me from getting into beefs with other FCs, so I leave it at that. That was quite a list, says Jesse David Fox. But the most intense celebrity interaction I had back then was when I got a little life advice from Sir Eric Idle. You brought room service to Eric Idle? He's my favorite python, says Jesse David Fox. Mine too, Jesse David Fox. And I sure did. It was way back in 2003, 2004, and he was on his Greedy Bastard tour. As soon as he checked in, he called room service and ordered up a hot chocolate. I set it down on the coffee table as he was unpacking and going over his itinerary. And he said to me, Thanks, mate. The rule was that I wasn't supposed to acknowledge the celebrities in any way, but with Eric Idle, I just couldn't help myself. So I said, Nudge, nudge, say no more, squire. What's that, then? he said. A wink's as good as a nod to a blind. I trailed off, sensing the anger in his eyes as he approached me slowly. You think that's original? You think that's funny to me? At all? I guess not, I said meekly. What's your job title here at this hotel anyway? I'm the room service attendant, I said nervously. Well, maybe you should think about trying to improve your station in life, don't you think? My head fell in shame. I could feel my eyes watering. You f***ing yanks. You go around thinking you're all gonna win the f***ing lottery of life. And it's only a matter of time till you somehow become rich and famous and you never have to work hard to achieve it. You want a little advice from someone who knows something about being successful, mate? He sounded like he was maybe softening his tone. I looked up, hopefully, and started singing. Always look on the bright side of No! If you wants to make it in this life, you gots to be greedy. You gots to be a frickin' narcissist, mate. Oh, you see? Who do you think makes up the highest level of wealth and power? After a pause, I guessed, greedy narcissists? You're f***ing right, mate. And that's what you gotta be too, if you don't want to go through your whole pathetic life as a room service attendant. I nodded sheepishly. And one last thing, before I ask you politely to get the f*** out of my room. Don't ever f***ing quote Monty Python again. Get your own f***ing material, mate. I backed slowly toward the door. It took 20 years for me to truly absorb Idol's words. Well, I said a brief anecdote, says Jesse David Fox, but it is a pretty good story. And your British accent, it's a pitch-perfect impression of Idol's Cambridge-tinged inflections. Thank you, Jesse David Fox. Comedy Bang Bang doesn't go quite so well. Before we even start... Scott Ackerman tells me he hopes I'm ready to do the Lithuanian chupacabra, but I tell him that is definitely off the table. I have a new character, a small business entrepreneur from Xenu who sings sea shanties, but Edie Patterson as Bean Dip and Matt Gourley as Professor Stillwater keep trying to take it in different directions and don't like it when I refuse to play along. Those chuckleheads don't get it. But at least I stop them from cracking themselves up for a few minutes. Next up is Ellen DeGeneres' web series, 
Funny folks on forklifts eating fast food. We chow down on some impossible carnitas burritos while sitting on the prongs, wobbling around some industrial backlot in Wedgwood. I tell her how inspiring I found her book, especially the part where she said, Don't worry about what people say about you or think about you. Let the naysayers neigh. They will eventually get tired of neighing. End note two. I think she's about to cry. She's so moved. But then she really gets moved, as in jostled, when the forklift driver hits a pothole, causing her to pour beans and cheese all down her polka dot vest. She stops the interview because she says she needs to straighten things out with the driver. The final stop on the Mitch Maloney mini-publicity blitz is drunk history. Aside from my dinners with Gabby, I've mostly been laying off of the giggle water since page 19. But I'm not going to say no to a bottle of Charlie Six courtesy of Comedy Central, or miss this opportunity to tell the world about Grok, King of the Clowns. Born in Bern, Switzerland, Grok literally ran away from home and joined a traveling Romani circus as a kid, and eventually became the highest paid entertainer in the world. He even performed for Adolf twice, and was involved in an unsuccessful assassination plot against him. I consider mentioning the baby blanket my grandmother made me. My grandmother from near Bern, Switzerland, as it happens that had a clown on it that looked just like Grok. Maybe better to not bring that up, I decide. I take another swig of brandy. Like Grok said, the genius of clowning is transforming the little, everyday annoyances, not only overcoming, but actually transforming them into something strange and terrific. It is the power to extract mirth for millions, out of nothing and less than nothing. And note three. You extract me with mirth, says the very spificated host of the show, Derek Waters. I'ma call you <coughs> Mr. Mirth, and that's how I get my show business nickname, the latest pseudonym on a list that is long and growing. This audio edition of Unstoppable Farce, The Mitch Maloney Story, was made possible by the Seventh Reformed Church of Latter-day Witnesses, The Bleepers.